0: This is the Green Street News, the Environmental Health Show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it may impact your life. Welcome back. One look at the weather map this week and you can see the problem. Massive heat waves, powerful storms, unusual weather patterns, a drought in the mid-Atlantic states, too much rain in the south, and tornadoes almost every night in the Midwest. This is climate change, a result of some natural meteorologic forces with plenty of help from humans as we continue to burn fossil fuel as if our lives didn't hang in the balance. The truth about climate change and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this
1: week? Okay, always something new, always something interesting. Okay. This is from an NPR broadcast. It was written by Bill Chappelle, and the title is, Florida Moves Forward on Radioactive Road Paving Plan as Governor DeSantis Signs New Law. Florida is another step closer to paving its road with phosphogypsum a radioactive waste material from the fertilizer industry after Governor Ron DeSantis signed a controversial bill into law. Conservation groups had urged DeSantis to veto the bill saying phosphogypsum would hurt water quality and put road construction crews at a higher risk of cancer. Elise Bennett, Florida and Caribbean director at the Center for Biological Diversity, said in a statement, quote, By signing off on this reckless handout to the fertilizer industry, Governor DeSantis is paving the way to a toxic legacy generations of Floridians will have to grapple with, end quote.
0: That's not a funny pun, is it?
1: No. The Environmental Protection Agency also has a say. Any request for a specific use of phosphogypsum in roads will need to be submitted to EPA as EPA's approval is legally required before the material can be used in road construction. To make phosphoric acid for fertilizer and a few other uses, phosphate rock is dissolved in sulfuric acid. Phosphogypsum is what's left over. For every ton of phosphoric acid produced, more than five tons of phosphogypsum waste is generated. Florida has been an important source since the 1800s. Currently, Florida accounts for approximately 80% of the current capacity, making it the world's largest phosphate-producing area. Florida's prominent role means the state also has massive waste sites called phosphogypsum stacks or gyp stacks. Such stacks can be very large, spanning up to 100 acres and about 200 feet in height. They have been linked to serious water pollution over the years due to sinkholes and other breaches. Phosphogypsum contains appreciable quantities of uranium and its decay products, such as radium-226. It is more radioactive than the original phosphate rock. This radium is of particular concern because it decays to form a radon, a known cancer-causing radioactive gas. An analysis commissioned by the Fertilizer Institute, a group that represents the fertilizer industry, disagrees. Saying that using phosphogypsum in road construction won't produce radioactive doses that are above the EPA's acceptable risks. Such work, it stated, quote, can be done safely and results in doses that are a small fraction of those arising from natural background radiation, end quote. The EPA says phosphogypsum remains prohibited from use in road construction as it has been almost continuously for more than 30 years. But under former President Donald Trump, the EPA briefly rescinded that policy starting in October 2020, but the rule was reinstated in June of 2021. The EPA said Florida would have to apply for approval of its plan, citing the Code of Federal Regulations. As with any other proposed project, the EPA would then open a public comment period, release its own technical analysis, and seek input about the proposal.
0: Florida certainly is an interesting state.
1: Wow, right now? You know? uh, if you want to know, <laughs> if you want to know what's happening, you know, as far as reversing environmental regulations and controls, you can just look at Florida.
0: We're going to put radioactive stuff on the roads, right? And but everything's you know, going to be fine.
1: But you know, it's not the only toxic waste product that comes from the fertilizer industries in Florida. Hmm. They also produce fluorosilicic acid, which is a type of fluoride that is toxic, but it's not considered toxic when it's sold to water departments yeah, around the country right. to add fluoride to the public water supply. So this is not this is news to me. I didn't know anything about phosphogypsum, but I do know about fluorosilicic acid. Really interesting. Now, two toxic waste products from the fertilizer industry going to a different use, a yeah. new
0: use. And they're selling them, and therefore they're not toxic anymore. That's correct. M- like magic. We can make this product non-toxic by selling it.
1: That's called the RCRA Act. It's Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and so that just means if you have a toxic product, but you actually sell it for use as something quote unquote beneficial, yeah. it's no longer considered toxic. Like I say, who it's, wrote that law? It's
0: a it's the magic law. <laughs> Okay, what else you got?
1: Okay, so this is actually published in Medscape, written by Lisa O'Mary, and it is uh, entitled, The WHO Plans to Declare Common Sweetener as Possible Carcinogen. The World Health Organization is set to list the artificial sweetener aspartame as a possible carcinogen, meaning it may cause cancer. Reuters cited two unnamed sources with knowledge of the process, noting that aspartame is one of the world's most commonly used sweeteners.
0: Well, I guess this news is sneaking out because aspartame is in Diet Coke and everything oh. else. I mean, oh, yeah,
1: just wait. Yeah,
0: okay.
1: Aspartame is 200 times sweeter than sugar. 200 times sweeter than sugar and was first approved by the FDA in 1974. For use as a tabletop sweetener and in chewing gum, cold breakfast cereals, and products like instant coffee, gelatins, puddings and fillings, and dairy products, up to 95% of carbonated soft drinks that have a sweetener use aspartame. And the substance is often added by consumers to beverages. Just a note, it's the blue packet of sweetener in that array of Mm -hmm. packets that appear on diners and restaurants' tables. Um, The World Health Organization currently lists 126 agents as known to be carcinogenic to humans, ranging from alcohol and tobacco to outdoor air pollution. They also list 94 agencies as probably carcinogenic to humans, and 322 agents as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Aspartame would join the possibly group, which includes gasoline, engine exhaust, and working as a dry cleaner. Of course, dry cleaners are are exposed to PERC, which is, you know, perchloroethylene, all day long. Yeah. Um, and earlier this year, the World Health Organization warned that people should not use non-sugar sweeteners to control their weight due to the potential cancer risks. This I, is since 1974. It's been on the market. You want to just look at that? You want to know how many millions of people have been using aspartame? I'm
0: pretty sure that when the... Um, when the manufacturers brought this to the FDA, the FDA looked at the test results and said, are you kidding? Well, no, no way we're gonna approve this. Yeah,
1: well, this is just, you know, you're gonna add this to the list of other artificial sweeteners like saccharin, right? Because that was a bladder cancer You know, Patty, risk. we're
0: trying to outsmart nature again. We, oh, we can Always. come up with this sweetener that doesn't, you know, that's 100% safe, and uh, oh, guess what, it's not
1: okay so this is actually an opinion piece it was published in environmental health news and it's youth versus montana young adults speak up and this is about a lawsuit and there are young people who are suing the state state of montana good so this is an editorial opinion piece um, written by georgiana fisher and claire vlasis we stand at the forefront of a consequential lawsuit driven not only by a commitment to the environment, but also by a love for the people and places that make Montana home. We are plaintiffs in Held versus Montana, the first ever constitutional climate case to go to trial. Despite our state constitution promising the right to a clean and healthful environment, our legislators have continued to prioritize fossil fuel industries, which has caused direct harm to our livelihoods and pose a grave threat to our future. We are moved to stand up for our rights by a sense of responsibility toward our environment, our communities, and our futures. We believe that young people are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change. Montana's path and policies are cause for great concern. Through this lawsuit, we aim to set a new direction for our state and others. Some of you remember summers without smoke. We don't. Like the June hailstorms that increasingly ravage Montana's crops and property, the legislature's path and policies give us reason to fear. These policies revolve around the promotion of fossil fuel industries that contribute to carbon emissions and exacerbate the climate crisis. Just this year, the legislature prohibited the state from considering carbon emissions or climate change when considering the impact of new coal mines and power plants. Each decision made without environmental considerations betrays the landscapes we hold dear and the generations to come. The state's continued reliance on fossil fuels not only perpetuates climate change, but also threatens the resources that have long defined our state's spirit. Our lawsuit, Held versus Montana, represents a crucial battle for our environment, our constitutional rights, and the well-being of our communities. We envision a Montana that breaks loose from outdated practices, a place where our constitutional duty to protect and preserve our natural resources takes precedence. By holding our state accountable for its unconstitutional promotion of fossil fuel industries, we shape a more sustainable future. We can forge a path towards a prosperous, equitable, and resilient state for generations to come. And we are working to make that happen. We aspire to see a Montana that leads by example, inspiring other states to adopt environmentally conscious policies rooted in constitutional accountability. Montana should not just be a witness to change, but a catalyst for it. We urge the state to listen to its citizens, especially the youth who will bear the brunt of the climate crisis.
0: This is great. I think that, you know, kids have standing here because they're the ones that are going to bear the burden and the cost. And, you know, the lifestyle changes are going to be required by this changing climate. Right.
1: And everybody in the Montana state legislature has... Children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews. Yeah. There are young people in their lives. I know, Penny, And it's not just Montana. Look at all the states that are promoting, you know, coal plants and you know fossil fuel industries and plastics Penny, manufacturing plants. You would
0: think they would do the right thing, but they want to get reelected, and reelected means you got to run for office, and that means you mean need money, and that means you're going to, you know get money from the fossil fuel industry because they've got the money to give you.
1: Okay. I do understand that. It's just, what's it going to take?
0: Well, we're going to be talking about that today with our guest, Mark Dunley, in just a minute. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. We live in a strange, almost surreal world. While existential problems continue to mount and are literally impacting the health and safety of everyone on the planet right now, our political leaders are focused on scoring points, blaming each other for our problems and taking bribes or campaign contributions from the people who are making the most money destroying the future for everyone else on the planet.
1: For a few weeks now, we've been talking about the plastic crisis, and this is International Plastic-Free July. But the climate crisis is really making the headlines this week. Record temperatures are causing all kinds of misery for those who have to work outside and for those without easy access to air conditioning. Torrents of water sweep cars and drivers away to their death as powerful and unprecedented rainstorms dump trillions of gallons of water into urban areas. Powerful winds bring down the trees and hail breaks windshields. Climate change is upon us this summer, and in many places, all you have to do is walk outside to experience it firsthand. The sad truth about climate change is that our politicians are so indebted to the big money interests that profit from the status quo and keep them in office that we may never see the kind of political courage it will take to fully stave off the worst impacts that lie ahead of us.
0: But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Every step in the direction of curbing our appetite for more energy and reducing our dependence on fossil fuel is a good thing. Every car trip you don't take is a good thing. Every time you don't get on an airplane to go to some distant location for a vacation is a good thing. Every time you walk or take a bike to work is a good thing. And every time you speak up to politicians about our need for change is a good thing.
2: We talk a lot about energy conservation, energy efficiency, but we're still gonna make that occur. I believe it is gonna take a revolution, uh, hopefully a
0: nonviolent, peaceful revolution. That's Mark Dunley, author of Putting Out the Planetary Fire, An Introduction to Climate Change and Advocacy. Mark is the co-founder of the New York State Green Party, a lifelong advocate who spent 35 years doing anti-poverty organization on hunger, health care, and economic justice issues. Mark is the co-founder of the New York State Green Party, a lifelong advocate who spent 35 years doing anti-poverty organization on hunger, health care, and economic justice issues. Recently, Mark's efforts have been laser-focused on climate change, which he sees not only as a worldwide environmental issue, but also as an environmental justice issue.
2: One of the points I make in the book, which is somewhat, uh, some people would say radical, is that capitalism and solving climate change do not go together. And in fact, surprisingly, Pope Francis actually pretty good on climate. He's made that point. But even the IPCC has made that point. We cannot solve climate change under a capitalist system. They primarily focused on the issue that capitalism is dependent upon growth as their economic model. But when you have both the Pope and the IPCC saying, we need something else, we need to be make decisions not based on maximization of profit for the 1%, but on the common good and, you know, we need to take action on climate, so that the focus is on reducing greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible. I do a lot of work with uh, 350.org, and the reason why we call 350 is because scientists like James Hansen decades ago said, in order to avoid you know climate disruption, we need to keep the amount of carbon in the atmosphere below 350 parts per million. And you know, in recent years, we've been hitting 420, 425 parts per million. That's how far past we've gone.
0: The Bible tells us that the sun rises on the evil and on the good, and that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But the impacts of climate change are not falling equally on everyone in the world, including right here in the United States, where communities of color and economically depressed areas are being hit particularly hard.
2: I did anti-poverty work for 30 years, I was running a statewide anti-poverty group when Hurricane Sandy came about. So many of the public housing projects, uh, particularly in the Rockways were flooded out because where do we build public housing? We build it where no one else wants to build. So we build in the floodplains. And so the water rises. They're the ones that get swamped. And a big problem, especially at that point, was all the, you know, air and heat and electricity roll in the basement. And so when it floods, there goes your electric system. And a lot of these apartment buildings were, you know, 10, 15, 20 stories. Tend to be disabled people and elderly people. And suddenly you don't have any electricity to run the elevators for 30 days or so. And it was surprisingly Occupy Wall Street was the one who went in and helped save those people and organize relief. It was not the Red Cross or United Way or stuff like that.
1: Many of the political decisions around climate change have to do not so much with actually doing the right thing, but looking like you're doing the right thing. That may work in the United States where fossil fuel companies can bribe politicians and buy airtime on broadcast networks to tell their side of the story, but it doesn't work in much of the rest of the world. In New York State, the legislature passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, or CLCPA. But much of the rest of the world wasn't impressed.
2: The United States has been the main culprit, and the CLCPA, this great climate law, basically was rejected in Paris. Uh, Al Gore and Obama and Kerry went over to Paris and tried to sell, let's keep the target at two degrees. And very surprisingly, the rest of the world said no, we're trying to move to 1.5 degrees. And yet New York state lawmakers did not change their positions once that law was passed, they enacted something based on what was rejected in Paris. But it's not just the United States, it's Saudi Arabia, it's Russia, it's Brazil, even to a certain
0: extent, India. One interesting thing at the last COP, that's the UN worldwide meeting called the Conference of the Parties.
2: And at Egypt, I guess last November, um, you know, Biden went over there or Kerry and uh, and they thought they're going to get widely applauded for this relatively puny inflation reduction act. And the rest of the world said, no, this is nothing. And so for once, Biden basically said, okay, we're not going to block the concept of uh, that we need to make reparations, loss, and damages to the developing world for the damages that we have made to cause. And the reason I am a little bit critical about IPCC, um, I mean, one science, scientists have a level of causality and proof that doesn't reflect the real world and and particularly does not quite understand how many different factors come together at once. But whatever the IPC actually issues has to be approved by the United States, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of them. And if you read the entire document, which frankly I don't do, what they put in the summary, which is what the politicians and the rest of us read, is actually often quite different than the science in the rest of the document, because this is the executive summary that the powers that be, you know, wordsmith and change around. And, you know, and they fight each time. We're going to phase out fossil fuels. Well, we're going to phase out coal. Oh, we're not going to burn as much. You know, every step of the way, as they get closer to the end, uh, it gets weaker. And the United States is is definitely one of the main culprits. I mean, China may may now, I guess, is the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, but we, the United States, has only been the cumulative leader uh, in emissions.
0: So what's in store for the people of the world when it comes to climate change? Will it take some international calamity, some truly breathtaking disaster, to get things on the right track around the world? There's a a book, Robinson, Ministry for the Future, uh, which uh, Bill
2: McKibben really heavily promotes. And I get a little upset with Bill about it because he said, well, Bill, the, the, the way we get the politicians to finally begin to pay attention to climate change is when a heat wave kills 20 million people in India and I would hope that we can somehow figure out how to move politicians without the need for you know 20 million to die. But one would think that the air pollution we're seeing from the, the wildfires up in, you know, in Canada, the heat waves that we saw or are seeing right now in Texas and the South, it, it seems to be occurring on a, a much more, you know, sort of frequent basis. I think the public is aware that something's going on, but we also need leadership. And, you know, the fossil fuel companies spending a lot of money doing a lot of misinformation about what climate change is and what people trying to solve it. And instead of Governor Hochul, you know, running and hiding, you know, she needs and her staff need to be really educating people at the grassroots level about the reality of climate change. And yes, it's going to take some change in how our society operates, but we're going to protect you and we want to engage with you. And, you know, if. If we do it, the only thing that's gonna occur is that it will be healthier for you. There'll be less air pollution, less asthma. There'll be a whole lot more jobs. I mean, probably the biggest barrier to the transition to renewable energy is how do we train enough people to do all the work um, that is needed. This is a win-win-win situation for everybody other than the fossil fuel companies. And the politicians have to stand up to the fossil fuel companies and say, your your time is up, and actually your time is not up. Your time is just starting down at the prison. You know, I think 10, 15 years, maybe you can get, you know, something. But they, you know, they were told by their own scientists, you know, hey, hey, hey boss, um, been crunching the numbers and we're burning up the planet. And this is not a sustainable approach. This would be a good, moment to really diversify into renewable energy and, you know, we can make this occur and they just dismiss them and get the bankers in with them as well because the bankers have actually increased the amount of financing they're doing fossil fuels since the Paris Climate Accords.
1: As we said at the top of the show, every step we can take as individuals to either reduce our demand for power or use alternative energy sources is a step in the right direction. Some things you can do at home.
2: We built our own passive solar energy, uh, you know, very tight house, you know, 30 years ago. We added in air heat pumps. It was at uh, frankly a little bit expensive. Get it, get a nice little subsidy, but we just said we needed to to actually do it and try it, see how it works, so we can you know talk about it. You know when you're buying you know a car, you know try to get towards the electric car. Think about how to use mass transit. You know think about how you uh, promote bicycling and, and pedestrian. But I think we had to tell the officials you're not doing enough, and you know doing rhetoric that we're past the toughest climate lower in the country. Well, that may be true at the time, but that doesn't mean it's adequate to solve climate change. And in New York State, for instance, you know, we brag, well, we're going to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent by 2030. Well, President Biden has enacted that we're going to have to cut emissions by 50 percent by 2030 nationally. 50 to 52 percent. So we're 10 percent behind what Biden is trying to do nationally. Uh, the IPCC intergovernmental panel on climate change, you know, they initially said, well, we need to cut, you know, emissions 45% by 2030. Now they're saying closer to 50% by 2030. And I think the IPCC, when you get more into this, I think they're actually pretty conservative for various reasons. But, they also make clear that by cotton, 45% of emissions or 50% by 2030 does not Anyway, get us close to actually keeping global warming uh, below 1.5 degrees centigrade. They admit that what they're proposing is completely inadequate, and that is why they promote heavily carbon capture and sequestration technology, even though they admit that 30 years of research and how many tens of billion dollars of investment has not shown that it is viable. But they just say our emission reduction goals are too weak to actually do what we need to do, so we've got to come up with some other miracle technology. And when Greta Thornburg a couple of years ago from Sweden, you know, spoke at the United Nations, she really chided the IPCC. You can't, you know, our generation is not going to tolerate you, you know, relying upon miracle technology to give us a 50% chance of avoiding climate collapse.
0: Greta is right. Our politicians are not doing enough on climate change. Baby steps are not going to solve our problem. And time is running out. Individuals can make changes and choices in their own lives, but what about national policies? Mark Dunley says, call your elected officials and let them know this is important.
2: Call up your politician and scream, pretend you're Jennifer Lawrence, we're about to die and demand action. And that's to stop fossil fuels. You have to stop taking donations from fossil fuels. You have to stop using them. You have to stop subsidizing them. That's really important. I believe it is going to take a revolution, uh, hopefully a nonviolent, peaceful revolution. I mean, the other way, of course, is society you know, collapses. You know, there are scientists predicting that, you know, sometimes in a century, there's certainly a significant possibility that human civilization as we know it will fall apart. You know, big cities, their fabric is, is so fragile. And I think most cities have, you know, a three-day supply of food. So if you chop off that food, sort of things begin, the collapse. I was in a event on a couple of years ago and some world famous philosopher who I didn't know said listen there's two paths for the world to take one is the present path that we're on and that is the 1% will become wealthier and then everybody's going to move the 1% behind gated communities and we'll have biospheres and they'll survive and the rest of us will fight for survival and the other path is that you know everybody is equal and that we're going to try to lift everybody up and we're going to try to protect everybody and protect the rich, protect the poor, protect the workers at the fossil fuel companies uh, and we will create a different type of world. Those are the two paths and he said I have no idea which of the two are going to come about but but we're just at the start of this.
0: Mark Dunley, author of Putting Out the Planetary Fire, an Introduction to Climate Change and Advocacy. Mark is the co-founder of the New York State Green Party and a national leader when it comes to climate change. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our friend and guest, Mark Dunley, our news editor, Alan Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.